Hello, and welcome to the second edition of the Junto podcast. I'm Ken Owen, and I'm joined today by Michael Hatton. Hello. And Roy Rogers. Hello. Today, we're going to be discussing the topic of academic historians and popular histories. Um, The reason that we've chosen this topic for today's podcast is picking up on a couple of issues that were discussed during the March Madness podcast. Um, Rachel Herman pointed out that our list was very concentrated on what we would consider to be academic histories. And similarly, John Fear, in his coverage of our March Madness competition, made the observation that while we had seeded Alan Taylor's William Cooperstown number one against a number 16 seed of David Hackett Fisher's Washington's Crossing, if we were to talk about a popular audience, their seeding of the books may have been very different indeed. And so that led me and others to think about the difference between an academic reading public and wider reading audiences. And so what I wanted to start off today's discussion with was the question why we thought March Madness had selected the field that it did, um, in particular looking at the question of why academics seem to have the highest regard for other academic books. And Roy. Thank you, Ken. I think that the reason why academics picked the uh, books that we did is because academics know those books. I mean, in think about uh, the number of books that we all have to stay on top of. Once you've entered a master's program, once you've entered a PhD program, or you've moved on into hopefully an academic tenure track job, you don't have time to follow broader uh, the broader discourse that goes beyond the uh, the books that are in your field, uh, your subfield, or even your your broader field, following the latest best-selling books or the ones that you could give your dad for Christmas or for Father's Day is just not something academics are really going to be able to follow, not even including the, the level of sort of taste. Are academics going to be interested in the same sort of historical stories that the general public would be interested in? Right. I think that's right. I I think for academics, it comes down to a matter of, uh, simply put, time management, right? But I think that the selection of the books in March Madness was very much a uh, the result of the nomination process that we had, which was very short. It was one day, one day's notice, and then just one day of voting, of nominating, and it's it's reflective of the blog's readership, right? I think what we learned, if anything, from the nomination process was that the majority of the blog's readers, surprise, surprise, are academics. I don't necessarily disagree with anything that you've said there, but at the same time, I'm thinking of this from, say, a teaching perspective. And one of the things that I've certainly found teaching a variety of early American courses is that the immediate reference points for many of my students are what we would term popular histories. Um, The most significant of that is when I teach a revolution class, the number of students that reference the John Adams miniseries is very large. And it seems to me that actually to be effective as academics, just in engaging in the classroom, having some sort of familiarity with the stories that are presented within popular histories is going to be something that's very important to us. And that's one of the things that I I wonder whether it's easy to lose a sense of. 
I think back to when I was 17 or 18 and the books that I would enjoy reading that first really piqued my interest in the American Revolution were either popular histories or were academic histories that were very clearly aimed at a perhaps touching a general audience. Is there a danger that a profession loses that sense? Do we really, though, do academics really have a problem with sort of following the general stories, though, that are out there that most undergrads or the general audience are familiar with? Like, I mean, think about the story that the John Adams miniseries. Is there really anything new about that interpretation that, that academics could get by reading more general histories or the sort of, uh, the sort of story of 1776 that David McCullough presents in his best-selling book, 1776, right? I mean, that's the general story that academics are familiar with from our time as general readers or from our high school education or from just, you know, being Americans or, or people that are interested in American history. So I don't, I don't think that there's a danger necessarily of academics losing touch per se with the narrative that the general public has of our history. It's more academics losing touch with how that narrative is presented. Yes, that's exactly what I wanted to, to comment on. That you know, We might be very familiar with the the facts and the narrative of David McCulloch's John Adams story. At the same time, I don't think there are many academics today that would write it in quite such a leadership studies stroke biography style. And dealing with some of that disconnect and dealing with some of those ideas about storytelling um, are particularly important in a way that we might otherwise lose. You talk about the presentation or, or the, the sort of leadership studies quality of popular popular histories, uh, such as McCullough's John Adams. But I think that, uh, and we were sort of touching on this before, about appeal, right, about what the appeal of, of popular histories, what makes uh, a certain uh, popular history appeal to such a broad audience. And I think that talking about presentation, I think that it's very much embedded in in the types of stories that the popular histories tell, right? So it's not so much, I don't think that David McCullough sells books or his, or his books are popular necessarily because of his writing style, his mellifluous writing style. I think it's actually because of the type of story that he tells and that other popular historians tell that is uh, heroic victorious, triumphal story, I mean, Whiggish stories. Do you know what I mean? And so I think while it's a, it's a valid question to talk, to talk in terms of presentation, but I think it's, it's much uh, more fundamental than that. It's the type of stories that are being told in popular history is not just the way that they're presented that's important. I think you're right there, Michael, because I think there's also necessarily maybe a political implication or at least a, a somewhat political implication in how those stories are told in many popular histories that many academics – I mean we see this over and over again when this discussion comes up uh, you know, in the, in the popular press and in the academic press. There's, a, there's political implications to telling the John Adams story the way David McCullough does or the Thomas Jefferson story the way – Meacham does in his recent Jefferson book, uh, John Meacham, and uh, with his Jackson book the same way, that many academics would, I think, object to both on, in a scholarly way and many in a, in a political way because, as you said, and you're, I think you're spot on there, Michael, that just sort of the, there is a way of telling stories that most popular historians embrace that many academics would just simply 
think is you know a, a, a you know a late nineteenth century way of doing history, uh, not a twenty first century way. I think that's right. I think that, for example, you know, if you go back to the sort of founder chic in the nineties, and with this slew of like character driven biographies of various founders, for for all the inherent flaws in uh, writing and judgment of the character of a historical actor, right? Those biographies are hugely popular. And I think that they were especially popular with people leaning toward the right end of the political spectrum, right? McCullough's Adams is very much a conservative revolutionary, right? And so founder chic in part, because some of it was actually written by academics, was much more subtle in its conflation of history and politics than sort of the culture wars of the 1980s. And I think that in that sense, founder chic, or more accurately, and even ironically, federalist chic, if you want to call it that, laid the foundation for the sort of modern Tea Party movement, or at least the part of the movement that tries to ground itself in the history of the revolution. But I think there's very clearly stories that can be told that aren't necessarily from what we might think of automatically as a conservative viewpoint. I mean, I think here of the edited collection, Revolutionary Founders, and the individual stories that are told there. And I realised I wrote about this earlier and suggested that one of the difficulties I had with it was that it was substituting founders, you know, capital, founding fathers, capital F, capital F, with a sort of a, a different set of individuals. But very clearly, we can think of other stories that might lend themselves to a popular history format without necessarily having the political implications that we've talked about. Well, I mean, I think I, here of something like um, Bill Harris's book on the hanging of Thomas Jeremiah, it's not a popular history by any stretch of the imagination, but it's a tremendously good book that focuses on one particular story that illuminates an awful lot about the revolutionary world. In fact, the limits of the revolutionary world. Why isn't that more of a popular history, I wonder? Well, I think, Ken, that, you know, some, some people might argue that the, uh, a, a book like Revolutionary Founders is just a left, uh, a sort of left-wing version of that. I don't know that I wouldn't necessarily make an argument, but I, I'm seeing how some on the other side would could make that sort of counter-argument. But so recent studies have found that people choose their news outlets, right, according to which one is going to cater to their already formed political views, right? That is, they don't uh, seek out the most accurate information from multiple sources and then try to come up with a, a rational opinion of their own. And I think it's the same with popular history reading. I mean, what else can explain the appeal and sales numbers of, uh, say, David Barton or, or history books by Glenn Beck or Bill O'Reilly? But I mean, there we're I getting wait. well away from talking about history books into something that's very different indeed. I mean, you know, Glenn Beck's Common Sense might talk about being a history book, but you only have to read half of the first page before you realise that it's polemic rather than any sense of history as we might currently understand it. No, but an I academic only has to read one page to understand that. I would, I would, I would suggest that, or I would imagine that a majority of the audience, of his audience, is reading that book uh, as a history book. I mean, I, I, I want to come back to something that Michael suggested in his comments, which is that 
you know, what is a popular history without an audience, right? I mean, there are many academics and non-academics who have written books that they think are for a general audience, that they believe that they're targeting a general audience, their publisher could think is a general audience, but they don't sell. They don't move at Barnes & Noble, they don't move on Amazon, but certain types of histories, even if we sort of bracket Barton, we bracket Beck, those sort of... Uh, you know, extremely politicized, but less obviously politicized books with John Adams by, you know, McCullough being the clearest book, which has sort of a political message uh, without being sort of super politicized. You know, those are very popular books, but other books that could be written by academics are, are less popular, even if they're, you know, published by Norton, they're published by Little and Brown, they're published by, you know, even like Harvard, which has a, a more general, uh, you know, audience target in it, in its, for its readership. They have that, that target, but they just don't reach the best-selling list. But if you look at what does reach the best-sellers, it is sort of the default high F, you know, high two Fs, founding fathers, founder chic stuff. And I, and I think that's because it is the default story of the American founding that we've been telling each, ourselves, you know, since the 19th century, since the early 19th century, perhaps mm -hmm. even earlier. And I think that the trouble that many academics run into of a variety of different stripes, um, not just leftists, not just race, class, gender people, but even people who want to sort of expand, you know, the traditional political story run into is that it's really hard, I think, with a popular audience to push against this uh, push against that default story and push against the story that they have known through their secondary education, they've known from their family, they've known from the History Channel. And I think that that's the trouble that we can run into uh, with with sort of what is popular history. It's a definitional thing because you can have a book that targets the general audience without it actually ever becoming popular. Okay, so maybe if I can get more of an answer to that question, um, I mean, how would you define popular history? I think it would, uh, for me, it would have to be a, a book that targets explicitly a general audience. Uh, it, uh, and, it, and it is a book that employs synthesis over, say, um, original primary source monograph style analysis and generally has uh, a strong narrative hook. So, this mean, so that means most popular history is going to focus around an event or focus around a life that's going to be very easy to tell a story to a general audience that's interested in storytelling and uh, over analysis. That's, to me, the most straightforward definition of what a popular history would be. Uh, so when I talk about popular history, when I use the phrase popular history, what, what I mean is uh, something that's defined by two things. The first is audience who is the intended audience of the book? Is the intended audience primarily academics, or is it, does it seek to address an audience beyond academics? So if it does, then that would suggest to me that it's a popular history. The second thing that I take into account, publisher. If the book is designed to appeal to an audience beyond fellow academics, and especially if it's on a trade press, then for me, that, then that's a popular history. Okay, so clearly you've got a much wider definition of what a popular history is than, than what Roy put forward. Mm -hmm. I mean, from, from my point of view, I think I tend more to towards Roy's definition. I, I wouldn't include an, an audience or a target audience that's based at undergraduates to be something that's a popular history. 
mean, if I'm being particularly direct about it, I guess my ultimate qualification is whether a book has endnotes or not. You know, how serious is the referencing? Um, I've always thought the difference between a, a, a trade book and an academic book is the ease with which an author allows you to track down their sources, um, how specifically everything is is referenced. Um, I, I quite like Roy's point about there sort of being an act of synthesis that's based around some sort of narrative hook. That seemed to be quite a good working definition of a of a popular history, something that wasn't quite so heavily based on on academic research. I mean, are you happy with using that definition from here on, Michael? I can go with that. Okay, excellent. I think that will help the, the, the rest of the discussion have a little bit of a tighter focus. I thought at this stage what might be a good idea is to talk a little bit about popular histories that we liked, that I think there's, there tends to be a certain unease with the popularity of certain books, especially those that do tell such teleological stories within the academy. But clearly we've all developed an interest in history from somewhere. I know from my point of view, popular histories were very important in developing that interest. Um, so perhaps, Michael, would you like to give an example of a popular history that you particularly liked? Sure. I, I too, uh, sort of uh, develop, re- developed an interest in the, in the revolution by reading popular histories, uh, which seems like many years ago now. But my favorite popular history is also my favorite single volume narrative of the American uh, the American Revolution, and that is Angel in the Whirlwind by Benson Bobrick. It was published in 1997 by Penguin, and he's an author who. Uh, received a PhD from Columbia, but has basically spent his career writing popular histories. He wrote this book about the American Revolution. He wrote a book about the uh, first vernacular translations of the the Bible in England. And in the book, he tells the entire story of the revolution from the Seven Years' War to 1783 in about 500 pages. And it's incredibly well-written. It's engaging. Um, It's even suspenseful at times. And that's a big achievement for a writer to be able to create suspense when they're writing about an event that everybody knows what the outcome is. And so that's a, it, it's, it's a sort it's a, to me, that's a one marker of an, of an excellent narrative style. And, and the, I just found the book so engaging. And whenever someone asks me to recommend a book on the American Revolution, a sort of non-academic person asked me to recommend them a book. I always recommend that one because I know that the narrative is solid, source-based, and and it's an engaging story that will hopefully uh, inspire the person to to read further, which is what happened to me and what happened to 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 you, I gather, Ken. It's what these popular histories can do to further one's interest. I started reading popular histories, and then uh, ha- after having read so many of them. Uh, I started reading more academic works, you know, and so that you would hope that these books, uh, that's of the value of popular histories are that they can inspire a person to go further in their reading. And I think that this is a book that can do that for a general reader. Roy, did you have any book you wanted to mention? Yes, uh, th- uh, Ken, I do have a book. Uh, anyone who knows me pretty well might be a little bit surprised I'm going to pick this book. But what I think is one of the best popular histories is uh, David Hackett Fisher's Washington's Crossing, which I think is a really 
excellent uh, military history of sort of leading up to Washington's crossing the Delaware, which, you know, is one of the most famous events. And it definitely is a book that tells a very familiar story in, uh, I think, a pretty fresh way, particularly for Americans, because the way in which uh, Fisher in that book gets inside all three of the military forces in, uh, that are involved, Washington's army, the British army, but also the German mercenaries who are serving with the British. And I think he does an excellent job also contextualizing the military maneuvers within actually a pretty good sense of the social and cultural history of New York, of Boston, of, of Pennsylvania and New Jersey in a way that I think is really compelling. And for someone who, you know, may be picking that book up to get that traditional story of how Washington crossed the Delaware, like in the painting, will actually get a pretty decent snapshot of a broader history of the early, the early uh, revolution. And I think that that makes it a very, very compelling book that uh, when I worked uh at a bookstore, I would always hand to people when they wanted something that, that was, uh, you know, for their dad for Father's Day, and he liked sort of military histories of World War II or uh, more recent stuff. I would always uh, push that book on them. Yes, I think we've all gone for similar themes in the popular histories that we've we've chosen. I mean, my recommendation would be William Hoagland's Declaration, um, which does a very similar job to what you were describing with Washington's Crossing. I mean, it describes the process that leads up to the, um, the story of the Declaration of Independence, but does an excellent job in showing just how contingent this process was. Um, it's clearly related somewhat closely to elements of, of my dissertation, and I certainly wouldn't agree with all of the analytical arguments that Hoagland advances within the book. But at the same time, in terms of introducing people to the diversity of characters that are involved in this process and picking out individuals very carefully to set them up to speak for larger parts of the radical movement and the movement towards independence, I thought it did a really good job of telling an engaging story um, on something that's very familiar, but would still challenge the reader to look for, look to challenge their existing precepts about the way that independence happened. I want to just briefly second the, uh, the Hogan book, which I think is, it, it also is good for its concision in the sense that it's a short treatment of, uh, of the subject matter in a way that uh, it gets a lot across in a very short number of pages that I, I just think is probably, in many ways, the most impressive feat that the book does, that it manages to tell this story in the way that you were describing, Ken, in, you know, in, a, in, in, a, in a very short number of pages in pretty large print uh, spacing as well. So I was very impressed uh, with, with his accomplishment in that book. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my, my next question was going to be, um, what academic historians can do to try and reach wider audiences. And maybe we've we've got one answer there, which is to be a bit less long-winded in the way that we write. I certainly know that that's a, a problem of what I talk about. And of course, there are good reasons for this. Um, it's difficult to explain constitutional minutiae without going into a certain amount of pedantry. But I think always thinking about that wider reader that wider audience and what terms they might be familiar with and whether it's possible to present a story in those ways uh, is something that's well worth thinking about. And Michael, did you have any thoughts about what academic historians can do to try and reach wider audiences? 
I mean, this is a discussion that academics have been having for a long time. And one of the one of the things that I hear most commonly is, you know, academics need to learn how to be better writers. Right. And I recently wrote a post about a, a course in narrative uh, history that I took here uh, with John Demos this past semester. And it was sort of some of the response was sort of, uh, you know, his, historian, academic historians need to learn to write better. But I tend to think that we as historians want to believe that if we were just better writers, of course, general readers would read our books. I think in, in some sense, it's professional vanity. I could write the most well-written book on, say, Thomas Jefferson's religious life, such as it was. It's never going to attract the large audience that buys David Barton's books. And that goes back to what I was talking about before with the reader being primarily concerned with the content and the style of the narrative rather than, say, the, the style of the, of the writing or the storytelling. In but there term- was something important that you said earlier in, 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 in that post on narrative history, which is that you remarked on how much better the writing of your classmates was than it appeared in some of the more traditionally academic history courses they'd taken. And that seemed to me to be a very perceptive but in some ways lamentable point, that when we're writing a historical narrative, we write in a much more engaging way than when we're writing analytical history. And yet, as historians, we're told that we need to be analytical, but this seems to be at a great cost if it's losing the readability of our work. Right. And so, I mean, that was the thing that that struck me the most about taking the course was the, was the creativity involved that, that, that the other, that my classmates uh, exhibited in their sort of more narrative writing. The, the, the problem with the course or with or with the profession more generally is that um, some of the things that we were able to explore, some of the techniques, some of the more stylistic type things that we were able to explore in our small bits of writing that we did throughout the semester is nothing that we could really apply anytime soon, right? We couldn't, we really couldn't apply those things to our dissertation. They're the kind of things that you could maybe do once you have secured tenure, right? And so the, the class wasn't in that sense um, immediately useful or immediately pragmatic, except for exposing us to sort of more recent uh, types of, of narrative readings, right? Narr- narrative histories. But in, in terms of practical uh, practicality, we just don't have the opportunity to utilize that kind of creativity in most of the academic settings that we write in. I tend to be a little bit more um, dour about the ability of academics to sort of self to consciously do a better job of reaching out to narrative to to the broader audience um, than either it seems that Michael or or you can are uh, are because I think it just seems to me when you look at the success of popular histories it seems to be remarkably contingent it seems to be that there was a big cultural moment that would be open to a you know, a book about John Adams or uh, other other big best-selling popular histories, uh, or it seems to be that the, the 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 author is writing to a specific pre-established community that's open to their narrative, their argument, and that could be the example of Barton or someone like Zinn or a variety of other successful popular histories. But all of those seem to be relatively contingent because there's been many excellent books that were written with a general audience in mind that just never took off. 
you know, even if they're like self-consciously trying to, like Nancy Eisenberg's book on Burr, which is trying to be a, a founder's book, but try to do it in a more maybe academically sophisticated way. But it never, it was a successful book, but it wasn't, you know, it didn't take the world by storm. We're not going to have an HBO miniseries on Aaron Burr. Uh, anytime soon, sad to say, which because I think he would actually his life would actually make a pretty good mini series. But that's one of the things that strikes me as really important about this discussion, which is that you say that there are big cultural moments that people just happen to be to be poised on. I mean, I, I can't see why John Adams would be the automatic choice for any sort of cultural moment, and yet we see the effects that it's had. If we just look at the polls of you know, how people rank presidents, John Adams has shot up since the McCulloch biography came out. And so what I want to get at here is, if there are these contingent moments or there are these audiences, why does it tend to be authors that aren't within the academy who fill these moments rather than people whose lives supposedly are dedicated to building up the expertise to allow them to commentate most effectively on these matters. So I want to say on the, in, in terms of, in, before, the, before that, that very good question, I want to, in terms of John Adams, right, the, the cultural moment that the Adams book appears in is the moment of the, the sort of scandal-ridden presidency of the late 90s. Right. And this is the, the sort of cultural moment of all of the, the founder chic is that uh, and why these biographies focus so much on character. Right. Is that, you know, you have these um, these amazing heroic uh, figures uh, who, who, are, who exhibit a character that our uh, current day contemporary politicians uh, do not exhibit. That's the moment in which. The Adams book sort of blew up. It's a sort of Adams as the anti-Clinton. But it's possible to imagine alternative stories that could have been written in response to that anti-Clinton narrative. Um, you know, there, there could be a popular history about the way in which the American Revolution was founded off popular endeavor rather than rather than reliance on great men, for example. And therefore, instead of setting up a moral character, you instead emphasize the general morality of the American people that would tell a very different story than Adams and one that would be much more in keeping with the way that the profession has developed. But in a sense, that's answering your question, Ken, right? Because those books were written because those are the kinds of books that popular non-academic historians are most equipped to write. Right. And academic, John, David McCullough is not equipped to, I don't think, to write the kind of book that you just described. Right. What, what you're describing is a book that's coming from the mind of an academic. What kind of books those all those popular historians are equipped to write happen to be the kind of narrative and the kind of style that people want to want to read. I think, though, there's also a broader cultural moment of the 90s, of the sort of second half of the 90s and the, uh, the early aughts, of a sort of new popular historicism that was focusing on the sites of sort of great men. Like, if you think there, there was another fresh move to renovate a variety of, you know, sites, Hamilton's home, uh, Montpelier uh, in, in Virginia, Madison's home, the, the Bird Plantation, that all began in sort of the late 90s and in the aughts, at the same time in which the, the Adams book was making all of its, 
you know, Splash, the HBO miniseries was coming out. There was sort of a new sort of great men focused popular historicism that has, I think, some origins in what Michael was saying, maybe in some other broader, broader uh, cultural constructs that I'd love actually to hear from a 20th century, late 20th century historian about that I think, you know, those books that were such huge sellers, including Joe Ellis's Founding Brothers that we're sort of leaving out of this discussion, but I think it's just as important as McCullough's book because it, it, would, it got turned into a PBS series. It was taught in high schools. It's actually, you know, um, and he's a, he has more academic credentials than McCullough does. And I think that there was sort of a broader movement in the 90s that were sort of just maybe moving out of now that sort of produced that big sort of founder chic stuff. But and, it's interesting uh, that you mention Montpelier because when I went there, the sense that you got, yes, you go there because it's, James Madison. And, you know, Madison is one of the characters I find most intriguing in the revolution. And just as a history nerd, it was really, really exciting to go and visit his house and walk the grounds that he, he, he worked on. At the same time, though, you know, the highlight of the trip for me was the interpretive tour of the African-American experience at Montpelier, which was done tremendously well. Yeah, and so the movement that you describe for renovating houses and looking at the lives of great men has been used in other forms to open up a lot of questions about the past in a way that the most popular books tend to close down some of those discussions. And again, I, and that's where I, I wonder exactly why it is that academics aren't providing stronger voices there. I do want to, just to offer a, a different avenue. You know, we're talking about ways in which academic historians can engage a broader audience, an audience beyond the confines of academia. But I've come to think that more and more, and I've become more and more fatalist about this, but I think that more and more our best opportunity as historians to influence the ways in which non-academics think about history is in the classroom, right? And sometimes that can be on a one one-to-one -one level. It's not as quick a fix, perhaps, as we would like as releasing a New York Times bestseller. But I think that it, it, it remains our, our best opportunity. And we, we have to recognize broader avenues. The heyday of, say, Hofstadter and historians as highly visible public intellectuals is over. But I, I believe that as historians, we should recommit ourselves to engaging in contemporary debates and that, which is something that I try to do on the blog, that my pieces on the Tea Party and uh, the, the video game, Assassin's Creed, right, are two of the most popular posts that I've done on the blog. And those are what I hope are examples of a uh, historian using their historical knowledge and perspective to place contemporary political and popular culture in context for a broader audience. I think that that's another way we can reach a broader audience. There are other ways to do it besides just writing popular histories and cashing in. Exactly. I'm really glad you've mentioned that because one of the things that I was going to throw in was the idea of teaching or even just giving public lectures in our local communities as being a form of popular history that in some ways is, is just as important. And that it, in some ways, the fact that we're structuring this discussion around popular history books tells us just how tunnel visioned historians can be at times about prizing writing and in particular the monograph ahead of other forms of historical presentation. I, I, I completely agree that, that teaching and other forms of 
publicity are a very good means of expanding the notion of popular history. And more available, right? Those, those opportunities are more available to us, and we should avail ourselves of those rather than waiting for the sort of pie-in-the-sky opportunity of writing a, a, a McCullough-type popular history. And I, I really, I think both you, uh, Michael and Ken, are clear about this. I want a third sort of that teaching is so central to this because I think that some of the most satisfying intellectual experiences that I've had uh, now that I've been teaching for two, two and a half years is been in the classroom. And that's really where you see, you know, and I, and I teach in uh, the public university system in the city of New York. You know, you're engaging with relatively common New Yorkers and you see their engagement with historical things, you chain uh, historical ideas, you see the sort of learning and analysis that they're capable of doing in that sort of face-to-face, one-on-one experience that I think really is, as Michael said, sort of the way in which I think historians can make a difference, particularly as more and more people of a variety of of races, classes, and genders are going into at least a community college experience. This is going to be where historians are going to be making uh, an impact as public intellectuals. And I think the attack on, and this is a question where sort of the attack on the humanities becomes a huge issue because you know if we're going to have more and more people getting associates degrees but humanity the humanities is increasingly locked out of the associates degree we're sort of losing that opportunity and uh, but of course also you know some of the most uh, frustrating uh, times as a public historian has been when the classroom experience fails so I guess there is uh, two sides to that and teaching wise when I've taught the early republic as a course I've actually used founding brothers as one of the texts as an entry into being able to discuss some of the the wider stories that in presenting a well-written elegant quite concise version of the history that they're familiar with and then setting it against complicating journal articles or chapters from academic books that I'm then able to draw out the significance and say well if this is how Adams and um sorry, not Adams, if this is how Jefferson and Madison and Hamilton come together to stitch up over the national capital, well, what are the popular movements on which they were basing their assumptions on the propriety of a national bank? And it can actually be a very useful way of, of bridging that gap is by being in the classroom and standing between the really widely read popular histories and some of the lamentably more obscure um, works of academic history that deserve a wider audience. Well, I think that brings us to a natural ending point for our discussion today. Um, So first, I'd like to thank Michael and Roy for joining me today. Thank you, Ken. Thank you, Ken. And to conclude, over the summer, we're going to be trialling some extra podcasts. Uh, We look forward to welcoming you as our audience again. Um, If you have any feedback or suggestions for future discussions, um, please let us know. Our email address is thejuntoblog at gmail.com. And as ever, you can find us writing on a more or less daily basis at earlyamericanists.com. Thank you.